Hello there, this is Benny. And this is Kyle. And you're listening to The Doctor's Watcher. The podcast where I watch Doctor Who and I tell you about it. Hey Kyle. Hey Benny, how are you doing today? Well, this is our first um, isolation episode. Uh, We're in the middle of a pandemic. Indeed. And so normally we record in the same room. I go over and visit Kyle and we record at his like dinner table but right now i'm at home so this might be a little different we want to ensure our listeners that we are practicing proper social distancing precautions and maintaining a distance of probably about three and a half miles between us for this recording <laughs> session yes the uh recommended by the cdc um anyway <laughs> so um, but another thing that happened recently, and speaking of social distancing, is we had a social distancing birthday party. Indeed we did. It was my birthday yesterday, so <laughs> we had a social distancing birthday party. That was yesterday. My birthday itself was a while ago, but the party was yesterday. So, like, part of me feels like I just saw you, but another part of me is like, man, I haven't actually, like, seen you in person in several weeks now <laughs> yeah i guess it has been a little while now yeah you did come by our place to pick up your your birthday present but i think i was like cleaning the bathroom or something i don't remember where i was but i didn't i remember i didn't see you guys yeah i i um, waved at your partner through the window but that was it. <laughs> <laughs> cool i will also mention for our listeners that there is a cat who lives at my house that Benny does not normally get to see because she runs and hides whenever anybody visits. But given that we are (laughs) recording remotely, it is entirely possible that you might hear the voice of Matilda at some point as a, a special guest over on my side of the recording. Yeah. I, I sometimes see like the tip of her furry tail disappearing around the corner or something. Uh, but usually not even that. <laughs> so I actually had something I wanted to mention that I had been th- planning on mentioning like a while ago, ever since before we entered this pandemic hellscape of a world when it was just a regular hellscape. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to give a shout out to a couple of our fans, actually. Um, we know that there are at least a few people who listen to this podcast And last I checked, uh, probably a couple of weeks ago, I believe we had three five-star reviews on iTunes, and at least one of them was not written by a host of the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I think the other two is us. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I wanted to give a shout out to, I don't know if, if this person wants us to use their name or not, but I think they credited themselves on their iTunes review as a listener from Hungary. Thank you, listener from Hungary. Thank you, listener from Hungary. We do know who you are. Indeed. <laughs> and I believe that you are probably one of our oldest and best fans. I also yes. wanted to mention a high school friend of mine who I also don't know if they want me to use their name on the podcast or not, but this person has followed our Twitter account since the start and has been listening to our podcast since the start and... We just wanted to say hi to our fans, and we appreciate you all. Thank you, Kyle's friend from high school.
So um, you usually start the episode by asking me what happened in the previous episode. Indeed. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and skip right into that. And we finally figured out the non-space vampire that was plaguing the TARDIS, and they got that all sorted out. Um, and then they ended up somewhere with a footprint in the snow. Yes, in fact, they ended up in episode 14, The Roof of the World. So I'm thinking Roof of the World, Himalayas, Footprint in the Snow, Yeti. Definitely seems like a reasonable assumption. Right. Uh, I, will, I will mention that this is this serial is written by a person named John Lucarati. Cool. And uh, John actually wrote three Doctor Who serials, as well as the novelizations of all three of his serials. So we will definitely be hearing more, you know, seeing more of his work later on. So hopefully this one's good. I was about to say, whether that's a good thing or not remains to be seen. So this app, this episode is actually notable for another thing as well. This is the first missing episode of Doctor Who. Cool. And in fact, this entire serial is missing. I know we've talked about missing episodes before, so I won't spend too much time on it here. But just as a brief reminder, um, the BBC used to just routinely delete their archived shows. Mm. I think this was due to combination of lack of storage space, lack of rebroadcasting rights, lack of actual physical film to film onto. Lack of believing that anyone would ever want to watch this show twice. Right. So yeah, all this together has kind of led to a lot of the early Doctor Who just being entirely gone. Uh, well, I shouldn't say entirely because the audio exists thanks to all the super nerds of the 60s who held their their cassette recorders up to the TV when <laughs> Doctor Who originally aired. And I, I say this thanks to the super nerds of the 60s, honestly and sincerely. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it kind of blows my mind that we could have nothing of these episodes, given how how huge Doctor Who is now, and, and what a big part of Doctor Who the idea that it's been around since the 50s is... Right, yeah. Like, to me, that, that definitely separates it even from something like Star Trek, which has been around almost as long, but still not quite. Not quite, yeah. Doctor Who predates Star Trek by, what, at least, like, four or five years, I think. No, don't make me do math. <laughs> or, you know, actually look up the years that uh, Doctor uh -huh. Who and Star Trek began. So some of the missing episodes have been recovered, but not this one, so we're not going to talk about that today. So normally I watch each episode twice mm -hmm. before we record the podcast. Obviously this time there's not an actual episode to watch, so I had to find some other stuff to do. And so for the first time, my first time through... I actually didn't watch anything. I just listened. Mm -hmm. 
turns out there's an official audiobook release that is available on a popular audiobook website. <laughs> Who is not sponsoring us yet, so we will not use their name. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I will also mention here that I didn't pay for it. I used uh, a free month of a trial period or whatever to get it. So if they want my money, they should sponsor us. <laughs> In which case, we will still not be giving them money, but they can give us money. <laughs> <laughs> but this audiobook, it uses all of the original audio from the actual episodes, and it actually adds in some additional narration, which is read by William Russell, who's the actor who plays Ian. And it was actually a really pretty good listening experience. I had a, a fun time listening to it. That's cool. The second time through... You know, normally I watch it once just for fun, and then I watch it a second time where I'm pausing and taking notes and stuff. And my second time through, I actually did find something to watch. There was an amateur video production company, I believe mostly in the 90s, but I'm not entirely clear on that. This amateur video production company called Loose Cannon, and they used existing photos and what little footage still existed as well as sometimes creating new footage of their own including mm. even cgi animation sometimes mm. to recreate missing doctor who episodes that's so cool yeah it was really cool so and yeah I went, and, I went and found the loose cannon reconstruction of the roof of the world and watched that i will say that i am not hundred percent sure on the legality of that <laughs> i believe what i read online somewhere is that these fan-made reconstructions are probably technically not legal because they're using the audio but the bbc tends to just kind of not look at them as long as you're not making money off of it yeah that's pretty chill that said, I I was not able to find it on YouTube. I think it had actually been pulled from there. I watched it on some other streaming site. Oh, well, I mean, having it on YouTube is kind of, I think, pushing your luck. Yeah, that's true. So, enough background and intro. Yes. Let's get into the actual episode. Let's. You have already reminded us of the cliff dangler. <laughs> finding this large footprint in the snow. And in classic Doctor Who fashion, this cliff dangler is immediately resolved in a line of dialogue okay. by Ian saying, well, It could be a perfectly ordinary footprint, Susan. And the sun's melted the edges and made it look a bit bigger. And Susan's like, Oh, and that's it. That's all the footprint gets discussed. And that's how you know it's not. <laughs> so Ian and the Doctor come out of the TARDIS into the snow, and the Doctor's a bit short of breath. Because they're up so high. Yeah, this is understandable because of the high altitude. Ah. Susan asks if he knows where they are, and he says, Well, I directed the ship towards us, and it looks as though I've been successful. And Susan's like, But what about that? Pointing at the footprint. And the doctor's like, That's the way I can't see anything without my glasses. Anyway, I don't like this place. They'll have to excuse me. I've got a lot of work to do first. And he just heads back into the TARDIS. <laughs> that, well, if I can't see it, I'm not going to worry about it. 
Yep. Seems uh, like a, a solid plan. As somebody with an incredibly poor vision who can't see much without my glasses, I think I should try to try this out sometime. <laughs> so Ian and Barbara look at each other and they're like, I don't know, do you really think we're actually on Earth? Like, where could this be? And Ian thinks maybe it could be the Alps. Barbara's thinking maybe the Andes. And Susan actually suggests... The title of the episode. Ian repeats... The roof of the world. (laughs) That's how you know it's the title of the episode. And fireworks and blasts of confetti go off behind them. Yes. And the episode titled The Roof of the World flashes in large letters across the screen. <laughs> I mean, you just assume it does because, you know, we lost the episodes. So right. I mean, we're yeah. like that's, 95% sure. <laughs> that's what I imagine, like, must, must have happened. I'm sure. I said 95%. It's more like 99.9% sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably closer. <laughs> But unfortunately, in in this unofficial reconstruction, all we got are some photos of mountains and then some photos of Barbara and Ian bundled up in winter clothing, looking at the mountains together with the TARDIS behind them. Cool. But Ian does point out, with regard to the possibility of being back on Earth, he says, Well, the Doctor isn't very reliable, you know. I can count on it. Oh, I mean, he's right, but... (laughs) (laughs) I did have to wonder just a little bit, though, is it the Doctor that's unreliable, or is it the TARDIS? Because we actually go right into a TARDIS belongs in the junkyard moment here, as the Doctor comes bustling out of the TARDIS door holding some circuitry, and complaining about how all the lights are out, the circuitry is burned up, and there's no water... And Ian's like, I mean, there's plenty of snow here, so, like, the water's not really a big deal, but what about the heat? And Doctor's like, oh yeah, that's busted too. So they all realize that they're probably going to freeze to death overnight. So Ian and Barbara head off to try to find some fuel to make a fire. You see, Ian is the fire maker, as we uh, have seen just a few serials yeah, ago. Yeah, that's, uh, did they actually like, reference that at all, or is that just you referencing that? Uh, no, unfortunately they don't. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think maybe it goes without saying, they all just know that Ian's the fire maker. Susan stays behind to try to help the Doctor try to repair the ship. And the Doctor is just pretty angry about the whole situation in general. Mm. He says... Even if I do find the fort, I don't suppose I shall be able to repair it before it gets dark, and then we shall all freeze to death! Whoa. Yeah, he got pretty worked up about it. <laughs> Chill out, dude. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a bit unusual. Like, usually it seems like he's not that concerned when they're about to die. He's just like, yep, probably we're going to die here. I feel like freezing to death is actually one of the more addressable, you know, solvable problems that they faced chased around by murderous aliens with laser beams and you know that, he seems a lot more confident because he's more intelligent oh maybe that's the problem he, you can't outsmart the elements oh that's true yeah if you're gonna freeze to death like it doesn't matter how smart you are if there's just no heat 
Yeah, you can't you can't outthink Mother Nature. So we cut to Ian and Barbara, who have been poking around for a while, but they haven't really found anything to be used as fuel in a fire. Well, I've read enough fan fiction to uh, know that the tension between these two characters means that when they're trapped with no heat and it's getting steadily colder, they'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was a Boy Scout growing up. I don't know if you were or not, but we definitely learned, you know, the proper method for warming somebody up if, you know, if somebody is caught with hypothermia or something. And I, I let's just say I can easily imagine fanfics being written about it. Yes, uh, I mean it, it is a well-known fanfiction trope. <laughs> <laughs> we actually don't go down that road quite at this moment, though. Barbara is feeling tired and needs a rest, so Ian actually leaves her and goes on ahead. Of course, pretty much as soon as he's gone, and she sits down. She sees something, and she screams, and Ian comes rushing back. And she tells him that she saw... An animal or or something just standing there staring at me! And she shows him the footprints, when it seems like he's not believing her. So he says... I better take you back to the ship. Which is kind of our bad 60s moment. Um, So these footprints, are they... I don't know if we have a picture of them or if the audiobook mentioned this, but do they look like human footprints or animal footprints? I think at this point in the episode, it's not entirely clear. Okay. Um, yeah, we, the viewers, didn't get to see him. Okay. And yeah, Ian doesn't really press Barbara for details. He's just like, all right, well, guess we better get the poor woman back to safety. Mm-hmm. Back at the ship... The doctor has figured out what's wrong with the TARDIS, but he says it's going to take him days to build a replacement part. Well, it's cool that he can at least build a replacement part. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool, too. We, of course, don't get any details about what the problem is or how he's going to build a replacement part, but but apparently he is. We can just assume it's like the, you know plasma flux regulator or something like that right whatever it is it's going to take him several days apparently so he says that their only chance is to try to get to a lower altitude where they might not freeze to death Hmm. barbara is like yeah but there's some weirder shit on this mountain sorry that was a joke for the players in my (laughs) D &D game yeah i think that uh now we have to get them to listen to the podcast. <laughs> I think Ryan does. Hi, Ryan. Yeah, I think Ryan does. And Ian's like, I don't know. I think that footprint was probably made by a fur boot. Hmm. So I guess it did look like a person's footprint. Yeah. Barbara is pretty sure that what she actually saw was not human. But the doctor's like, yeah, but if it was human, then maybe there's shelter nearby. Mm-hmm. At this point, Susan actually sees something, and they all look, and it turns out it is a human, and it runs away, so they all try to follow it. They follow this guy in the mountain, and they end up finding a whole group of Mongols in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And one of them 
It says, In these parts live evil spirits who take our likeness to deceive us and then lead us to our deaths. Let us therefore destroy these evil spirits before they destroy us. And of course they speak English. Right, naturally. (laughs) (laughs) Ian objects and points out that they're actually real people, not evil spirits. So I assume, you know, these Mongols are like Genghis Khan era Mongols and not, you know, wearing t-shirts and jeans or something. Right, yeah, that that is a correct assumption. Because <laughs> I feel like <laughs> with a show like this, any Mongol is probably wearing like a fur hat, has a sword, and a bow, and uh, is is ready to you know chop off your head at a moment's notice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the costuming was actually pretty cool in this episode. It was, you know, it was fairly elaborate. There's definitely a lot of fur going on. <laughs> Um, and, you know, obviously, unlike the Thals costumes, this is at least pretending to be based on some historic thing. But yeah, it was pretty cool, actually. Kind of interesting. Cool. And, you know, educational content for the kids. Right, exactly. So yeah, Ian objects, and he points out that we're actually not evil spirits, we're real people, but the Mongol is pretty sure that they're evil spirits. <laughs> is that what he says? He's like, mm, no, I think you're evil spirits. No, oh, I've, I've, I've been considering it, and I, I'm pretty sure, just based on the evidence available, that you're evil spirits. Your argument has not swayed me. The, uh, but... the evidence was not um, compelling. <laughs> But before the Mongols are able to actually attack our heroes, a European appears from behind them and orders them not to attack in the name of Kublai Khan, and they all put their swords away. Different Khan than the one I was thinking of. So this European is like... The old man has the mountain sickness. And Ian's just like, yep. So the European takes them to his caravan, which is farther down the pass, like, you know, at a lower altitude. Mm-hmm. And when the party arrives back at this caravan, the European introduces them to his serving girl, Ping Cho, who serves them all bowls of soup. And at this moment, we actually get kind of two different colliding Doctor Who is an educational show moments in first we get Barbara and Susan trying to figure out who this European is oh who could it be right Barbara had noticed him mention Kublai Khan earlier and she knows who Kublai Khan is and she knows that he had a Venetian in his service she can't quite remember his name Well, she's explaining all this to Susan, and she's actually just about to mention his name when he interrupts her to apologize for the soup being cold, which kicks off our our second Doctor Who's an educational show moment, kind of trying to happen at the same time. He apologizes for the soup being cold, and he says that the cold up here in the mountains is so intense that it even robs the flame of its heat. 
And Ian well actually is him. He's like, The cold can't affect the heat of the flame, sir. The liquid boils at a lower temperature because there's so little air up here. And the European's like, whoa, cool. It's the air then? Or the lack thereof, huh? And then Barbara gets her chance to finish up her educational moment by asking him, oh, by the way, is your name Marco Polo? <laughs> and sure enough, it is. He says, yes, I am the only European to ever have traveled in the Himalayas and now with Mongols. <laughs> so he asks their names, you know, the, the polite response. And this leads us straight into another what was Ian's name again moment when the doctor responds... Oh, we're, we're travellers, yes. That's my grandchild, Susan, and that's Miss Wright, and that's Charlton. <laughs> Chesterton. Ian Chesterton. <laughs> okay, see, that one, I remember there was one of these, like, what was Ian's name again moments when he was just, like, completely out of left field. But Charlton is at least close enough that we can be like, okay, I can tell what he was going for there, and he didn't yeah. quite hit it. Yeah, Charlton, Chesterton, like, that seems reasonable. Yeah. So... Ian corrects him, of course, with a wry smile on his face. And Marco officially introduces them to his companions, the Lady Ping Cho and the Warlord Tagana. Hmm. He says that they're traveling to Shengtu, and Barbara's like, oh, that's in China, isn't it? And Marco Polo very politely says... I don't know what the fuck China is. Sheng Tu is in Cathay. Mm. And Barbara's like, oh, right, right, Cathay, that's what I meant. Educational moment. Uh-huh. And Marco's like... I have to say, these are like genuinely educational moments, though, not like, at one point, cave people invented fire. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think was like the sum total of the educational value of that previous serial. I don't know. I mean, I, th I think that's probably more educational than some of our school systems these days. <laughs> so Marco is like, you know, I'm actually pretty curious what the fuck you all were doing up on the mountain that late in the evening, but questions can wait until the morning. I never realized Marco Polo uh, had such colorful vocabulary. <laughs> well, you know, you travel a lot. Yeah, it It's his translator. It's whatever's helping him speak in English. Yeah. The doctor is like, oh, actually, I've got a couple of questions for you. And Marco's like, okay, shoot. And the doctor just comes right out with it. He says, uh, what uh, year is this and, and where are we? Hmm? And Marco's like, uh, don't you know? And the doctor's like, if I knew, I wouldn't be asking. And Marco responds, how long have you been traveling? It is 1289, and this is the plain of Pamir, known to those who travel to Cathay as the roof of the world. The roof of the world? As fireworks and confetti explosions go off once more. Yeah, and they had some budget for this one. Yeah, they probably had saved up their mentioning the episode name budget from a few episodes previously. Yeah, every time so we were like, at the you know, almost a bad, and, but they never quite said... Right. The actual names of those episodes. Right, because they were planning for this one where they wanted to say the roof of the world several times. And the producers were like, okay, but that's it. So that 
that night, Susan sleeps in Ping Cho's room, and the two of them get to talking. Ping Cho asks Susan where she's from, and Susan's like, That's a very difficult question to answer, Ping Cho. And she ends up telling her that, Well, I've had many homes in many places. Hmm. Ping Cho is from Samarkand. And she tells Susan that she's going to Shengtu to get married. Susan kind of seems to think that Ping Cho is probably too young to get married, but she doesn't directly say this. Uh, Ping Cho is 16, mm. I will mention, and Susan says that she is too. Mm -hmm. I kind of thought earlier she was 14, but I didn't actually check any scripts, so maybe I'm just remembering wrong. Or maybe the writer's remembered wrong yeah in any case ping cho is 16 and sure susan's also 16 susan asks ping cho if her fiance is handsome but ping cho doesn't know because she's never met him mm. all that she does know is that he's super important and that he's 75 years old oh oh yeah, I thought that was a bit unfortunate. There's an interesting little bit of dialogue where Susan refers to Mr. Polo, and Ping Cho corrects her, telling her that they call him Messer Marco in Cathay. Hmm. Which I thought, I guess it's because of the tradition that some countries have of family name first and individual name second, was my assumption. Um, like, I think Koreans do that and also Bajorans. <laughs> Hi, Kyle here. Thanks for listening to The Doctor's Watcher. If you enjoy the podcast, it would mean a lot to us if you would leave a five-star review on iTunes and tell your friends about us. But aside from that, we'd love to hear from you. Please feel welcome to drop us a line by emailing thedoctorswatcher at gmail.com or on Twitter at Dr. Watcher. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Meanwhile, Tagana, the warlord Tagana and Marco are sharing a nightcap together where Tagana tells Marco Polo that he really should have just let him kill the travelers. And Marco is like, dude, don't be racist just because their clothes and speech patterns are weird. But Tagana's like, they are evil spirits, sorcerers, magicians. He's like, dude, their carriage is fucking weird as shit, too. It doesn't even have wheels. <laughs> he says, it just stands there like a warlord's tomb on one end. And another thing, it is not large enough to carry four people. It's interesting that he saw the TARDIS and he just concluded it was a carriage at all. As, as yeah, opposed like, to, like, you know, like you were saying, some sort of a tomb or monument. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting, too. There's, you know, he has, like, no context for it mm -hmm. whatsoever. So I would imagine seeing something like that, you probably would just think it's, like, a tomb or a monument. We don't really get Marco Polo's reaction to this, though, because we just cut to the next morning where... Marco Polo, Ian, Barbara, Susan, and Tagana are all up at the TARDIS, 
which, you know, they had just left in the mountains. Marco is like, cool, cool, so this is your carriage? Where are the wheels? Ian's like, oh, it doesn't have any. Marco asks how it moves, and Ian responds, through the air, which I thought was interesting because Ian has never actually experienced that happening. As far as Ian knows, all the TARDIS can do is tunnel through the time-space continuum and, like, pop out into a different place in time. You know, they've never actually, like, flown it through the air. Yeah. Hi, Matilda. As such. By the way. <laughs> yeah, you may have heard Matilda a moment ago. I up on me house. <laughs> also, probably I... telling someone that your carriage flies through the air without the use of wheels, not the best uh, approach if they already think that you're evil sorcerers. Right? Yeah, there's that too. I guess I decided that considering that they're in the year 1289, saying that the carriage flies through the air is probably much easier than trying to explain tunneling through time-space dimensions, mm -hmm. even if it is inaccurate as far as Ian knows. Well, it does travel. It does change locations and travels between those locations regardless of anything in between, which includes the yeah. air. It's like it's traveling through the metaphorical air. Yes. Yes, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> so Tagana turns to Marco and he's like, see, what did I tell you? But Marco is just like, oh, cool. Like, are you guys Buddhist? And okay. Ian's like, it's a bit uh, of a stretch. no. And Marco's just like, oh, cool, cool. It's just that, like, I've seen some Buddhist monks at the temples make wine glasses fly and shit. I don't understand it, but it's pretty fucking cool. And then Marco's like, so you can all, like, fit inside here? And Barbara's like, oh, yeah, totally. Marco wants to go in, but the doctor has the key. And the doctor is not on this little expedition. Marco wouldn't let him come on account of his mountain sickness. Mm -hmm. Marco asks Ian if he can make it fly. And Ian's like, nope, just the doctor. So I remember when we were talking about the one with the cave people, we were talking a bit about the um, prime directive. Right. And how you're like messing around with history. You could change something alter the course of a civilization or something like that and I feel like you know if you're talking to cave people they don't understand anything and even if they did they couldn't act on it but now we're, we're working with people with more of a concept of the world science history um, the universe so you could conceivably tell Marco Polo something um, about technology or the future that would change his decision making or what he would do otherwise mm -hmm. and accidentally mess up history yeah i think that is definitely a, a much stronger possibility and concern here than it was you know in the one with the cave people but our heroes do not seem bothered <laughs> so marco asks if the tardis can just be, like, moved, just, like, regular. Mm -hmm. And 
Ian's like, uh, yeah, sure, like, if you've got enough dudes to move it. And so Marco decides to have a special sled constructed to tow the TARDIS. We cut back to camp, where Ping Cho is making soup again, and she tells the doctor about, about Tagana. It turns out he is an emissary from Khan Nogai, who's been at war with Kublai Khan. Mm. And apparently Nogai has sued for peace, so Tagana is traveling as an emissary from Nogai to meet with Kublai Khan and discuss peace terms, basically. Cool. And the doctor, upon learning all this, is like, Well, for an emissary of peace, I must say he has had all the bloodthirsty habits, hasn't he? <laughs> well, he's still a warlord. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought, too. Can't take the war out of the Lord. And just about this time, the TARDIS visiting party arrives back at camp, and Marco is like, dude, your caravan's fucking weird, but we're making a sled to tow it down here. <laughs> and the doctor's like, sweet, I can have it fixed up in a couple of days. I don't want to delay you any longer than necessary. Did he call it a caravan or a carriage? I think he called it a caravan. I think they used both terms at different points in the episode. Because I always thought a caravan was like more than one thing. That's kind of what I thought too. Actually, let me let me look at the script real quick because now I'm curious. Right. Yeah, Polo refers to it as a caravan. That is interesting. I find your caravan most unusual, Doctor, he says. Hey there, this is Benny, bringing you Definition 2B for Caravan from merriamwebster.com. A covered wagon or motor vehicle equipped as traveling living quarters. Uh, I guess this is a more common usage in the UK, maybe? Anyway, back to the episode. So the doctor's like, you know, I don't want to delay you any longer than necessary. It'll just take me a couple of days to fix it. And Marco's like, uh, actually, you're not going to delay us at all because it's basically super dangerous to delay when you're crossing the plains of Pamir. You are going to have to come all the way to Lop with us. And the doctor is like, the TARDIS too, right? And Marco's like, dude, doctor, I once transported an entire army and its equipment from uh, Cathay to India, all without loss. And the doctor's like, okay, cool, cool. I, I'll just work on the TARDIS while we go then. And Marco's like, uh, not really. See, the thing is, the Mongols all kind of still think that you're evil spirits, but they think that you don't have any power outside of your caravan. So you can't go in it until we get to Lop. And the doctor, kind of frustrated at this point, is just like, oh, whatever. <laughs> we get a little bit of some off-screen narration from Marco Polo at this point as he talks about the journey to Lop, which is illustrated in classic Indiana Jones style via a line, dotted line on a map on our TV screen. Very cool. He also wonders in this, this narration, which in the context of the episode, is actually a diary entry that Marco is writing. He wonders... What the stranger's reaction will be 
when I tell them what I propose to do. Ominous. We cut to some time later. I guess this dotted line on the map and the journal diary narration was actually the journey to Lop itself. So we cut to some time later as they are in Lop and they're at this way station preparing to cross the Gobi Desert from here. Cool. And Marco Polo asks Ping Cho and Susan what they think of the lodgings. And Ping Cho comments on how comfortable they are. And Susan says they're fab. <laughs> that is a strange <laughs> word you're using. Well, I thought it was interesting. Ping Cho actually does question this because apparently even though she can speak English, she doesn't speak 1960s slang. <laughs> so Susan explains to her... Well, it's, um, it means wonderful. It's a verb we often use on Earth. It's also an adjective. Right. And we're still on Earth. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Man, we're just all over the place. <laughs> Uh-huh. I actually, yeah, I had both of those in my notes. <laughs> Did she forget they're still on Earth? Also, fab isn't a verb, nope. it's an adjective. <laughs> so much for educational content. <laughs> <laughs> they're just, like, undoing all the earlier moments here. This is kind of a, more of a history show than a grammar show. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, yeah. Ian and Barbara are history and science teachers. Except when we learn about pronouns. <laughs> so the doctor heads out to the TARDIS, which is now set up, like, in a courtyard. But the Mongol guards won't let him in, which surprises him, because, you know, Marco had told him, like, you're going to have to wait until we get to Lop before you can fix your thing. Yeah. And now they're in Lop, and the guards won't let him in. So he storms back into the room, and he's like, What the fuck, Marco? And Marco is very calm. He's just like, Please be seated. Doctor's like, I don't want to sit down. I have work to do. Oh. And Marco's like, please have a seat. And eventually Barbara is like, doctor, maybe we should like listen to him and shit. And so she gets the doctor to sit down. And once everyone is settled, Marco explains about how when he was a boy in Venice and he came with his father and his uncle to Cathay, and then he got into the Khan's service and, you know, has basically been here serving the Kublai Khan ever since. And a few years ago, he and his father and his uncle all asked the Khan if they could go back home, back to Venice. And the Khan said no. Apparently they've just been serving, like, too good. The Khan doesn't want to let them go. Marco apparently really misses Venice, and he just wants to go home. It's been 18 years since he's been there, so his grand plan is that he's going to give the TARDIS to the Khan as a gift, and then the Khan can't say no when he asks to go home. Or he could just take the TARDIS back to Venice. <laughs> I guess they haven't quite... Explain that to, to Margot yet. It flies through the air, this strange carriage or possibly caravan. 
that's true. They they did explain that part. Yeah, I wondered why he didn't just ask them, like, could you all just, like, fly me back to Venice? I mean, it is a pretty far way. Yeah. Maybe he just thinks it flies from, like, one side of the state to the other. And I suppose given what we know of the TARDIS so far, it's unlikely they would have made it to Venice anyway. <laughs> they probably would have ended up on, like, some alien jungle planet halfway across the galaxy in the year 50 billion or something in a junkyard right in the year 50 billion so marco tries telling him all that like it's really just not a big deal he will just take them all back to venice with him and then the doctor can just build another tardis and ian's like no dude we need like special materials and shit you don't understand Mm -hmm. And the doctor's like, I mean, neither do you, Ian. And Ian's like, dude, Marco, only the doctor can fly this. And Marco's like, nah, like, remember those Buddhist monks I told you earlier? They'll figure it out, totally. <laughs> that, that seems logical. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, they can fly wine glasses around. Why not a TARDIS? <laughs> the doctor starts laughing at this. And he just keeps laughing and laughing and laughing. And Susan and Barbara are both kind of looking at him like, dude, what's so fucking funny? I think Marco's actually pretty serious. Mm -hmm. And the doctor just keeps on laughing. Meanwhile, in a back alley, the warlord Tagana buys some poison from a shady dude. And he tells the shady dude his entire plan. I mean, that, that seems like a, your best bet. If you're going to buy some poison, buy it from a shady dude, because they know what they're on about. Yeah, like, not only can they generally make good recommendations about what types of poison you might want to use for different circumstances. Exactly. But I think generally they also don't even charge sales tax. <laughs> Yep. Very little paperwork involved. (laughs) (laughs) You do have to pay cash, though. (laughs) This is fair. So it sounded like Shady Dude was already part of Tagana's plan. So I think when Tagana tells him the whole plan here, it's probably just confirmation. Mm -hmm. But it turns out what the plan is, is that Tagana is going to poison all of Marco Polo's water gourds, except for the first one. And then, as they're all crossing the desert, Tagana is going to sneak away from the group on the third night and meet up with Shady Dude, who will have been following the group this whole time. And the two of them, Tagana and Shady Dude, will ride back to Lop together, where they'll just chill out for a couple of days, and then head back out into the desert to collect the TARDIS for themselves. Dang. So he's not just trying to kill the Doctor and his party, but also Marco Polo, Pink Cho, and presumably any other, like, Mongol folks that are with them, right? Right, just kind of like the whole entourage. Yeah, dang. And with this, the screen goes to black, and... Next episode, The Singing Sands appears on screen. Whoa.
this guy is ice cold, colder than the Himalayas. <laughs> Hell yeah, he is. Where the boiling temperature of water is lower because there's less air. <laughs> Though I think that's actually because of the pressure, the air pressure. I think that's right. Yeah, it has to do with the air pressure. Ah, so much for the silence. Which, well, I guess that is still. I guess technically that is like yeah. less air or more air. As opposed to like how much oxygen content there is. Right. Uh, but yeah, I guess I guess Marco's assumption is just that it's it's so cold that even the fire itself is colder. Yeah. Which I mean, you know, if you don't know much about things like air pressure, it seems like a pretty reasonable conclusion. Yeah. Cool. Well this is a pretty cool episode so far. I mean one question I kind of had for you, though, and I, I think we might get into this more um, as we go through the other episodes, but like, what was it like experiencing this episode without an actual episode there for you to watch? Did you find that you could still get into it? It was interesting. I, I'm actually not sure if I preferred listening to the audiobook with the additional narration or if I preferred watching the Loose Cannon Reconstruction. Because with the Loose Cannon Reconstruction, they still have to have some amount of subtitles on screen that explain action that's happening that's not mm -hmm. apparent from the dialogue. Mm -hmm. You know, like the same, basically the same types of narrative explanations that William Russell recorded for the audiobook. But in the loose cannon reconstruction, they're presented as subtitles on screen hmm. rather than just an additional narration. And so that meant that like, I really had to actually be watching and like keep my, keep myself engaged with it or I might miss stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But of course with the audiobook, you know, I'm not watching anything at all. I'm, you know, I'm just sitting there listening to it and, you know, probably playing a mindless game on my phone that I don't have to think about. <laughs> and that was almost maybe more engaging than, than watching the reconstruction. Yeah. I know there are, I think there are a few different reconstructions. I don't think loose cannon is the only group who's done anything like that. So, uh, for the next episode, the singing sands, I watched another loose cannon one, but I think for, other episodes in this serial, if there are other episodes, because I'm not going to spoil how long the serial is. <laughs> but I think I, I'm going to, you know, try to get at least a bit of diversity in my reconstructions of missing episodes. Yeah, I, I mean, not having seen them, it sounds like from your description, like the audiobook feels more like a complete product as opposed to the reconstruction, which is like a best attempt at approximating the original experience without actually standing alone as its own thing that you might otherwise want to experience. Right. And yeah, I think fundamentally that is the biggest difference is that the audiobook can and is meant to be just purely an audio experience. Mm -hmm. But the visual reconstructions are trying their best to come close to approximating something that they know absolutely for sure going into that they're not going to be able to fully reproduce. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. Uh, you put it 
much more succinctly as usual. <laughs> um, yeah, so this one sounds kind of interesting. Um, one question, I, I guess I always have this in the back of my mind when we're doing these historical ones, um, but I guess less so with the uh, um, cave people one because that doesn't really matter as much. But as we get into the more historical, like actual history, various parts of the world type stuff, like I know that Aztecs come up later. Now we've got like um, Mongols and people from various parts of Asia. Are these actors all white people? I I didn't look at the names in the credits that closely, so this is just purely based on their appearances in the reconstructions that I watched, but I think that actually some of them probably had at least some Asian background. Okay. And, yeah, I I didn't see any obvious, like, brown face going on. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, that's the sort of thing I was worried about. <laughs> this being, you know, <laughs> back in the day. Uh-huh. I mean, they all do still basically have British accents. Yeah, but, well. But, yeah, probably some of these British actors, I think, had at least a little bit of, of Asian ancestry. Don't they at some point probably in the future when they start worrying about stuff like this, but don't they eventually reveal that the TARDIS itself has some sort of translator properties that it's like beaming the translations into people's minds or something along those lines? I think there's something like that, yeah. I suspect we're probably not going to officially learn about it for quite some time. But... I think it's one of those like, oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. But yeah, I do have a vague memory of hearing something about that in like one of the new new Who episodes. Yeah, cool. All right, well, um, did you have anything else in your notes that you wanted to talk about, or should we go on to the next episode? Um, I think that is basically what I had for this one. All right, so um, listeners, we will see you again in two weeks. Um, Indeed. Bye. Wash your hands. Yeah, yeah. who knows what the world looks like. I mean, you know, this is our first um, isolation coronavirus episode, but for all of you, you've been dealing with this already for, I think, a couple of months at this point. Yeah, so. this episode comes out like mid to late May, so hopefully yeah. we will still have listeners. Hang in there. <laughs> Alright, bye. Bye. Hi, Benny here. The Doctor's Watcher would like to thank Circuit23 for the awesome theme song he created for us. You can find his music, including our theme, at soundcloud.com slash circuit23. And you can reach him at circuit.23, that's circuit.23 at gmail.com. Thanks to Kyle for talking to me about Doctor Who, and thanks to all of you for listening to me, listening to Kyle talk about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at thedoctorswatcher at gmail.com or on Twitter at drwatcher. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you review your podcasts. Join us next time on The Doctor's Watcher.
Come on, come and sit down. Look who makes what he meant. Grandfather. Grandfather. Yes, go by C, he says. Why are you laughing? He means it. Doctor, he's serious. I know he is, yes. What are you going to do? Oh, I haven't the faintest idea. 